morning, Missio. This is the reading of God's Word, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, at a gas station in Payson. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Well, I'm back. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of me today. Heather is on sabbatical, if you didn't know that. She's off for the next three months, and we'll be back in August. Uh, I imagine you miss her as much as I do. <laughs> um, if you can't tell from the passage that Jeff just read from, we are in the book of Revelation. We decided, um, against better judgment, to do a series in the book of Revelation this <laughs> called Kingdom Come, and I have been regretting it ever since. No, I'm just joking. Uh, it's been really good. And we have just begun it. So last week, we finished up chapter one, and today we are entering into chapter two. And over the last couple of weeks, the primary thing that we have done is try to lay some groundwork to give us a bit of, like, handholds as we work through a book that is arguably the most complicated, difficult, and controversial book in the entire Bible. And so we've said a couple of things that I think would be helpful just to recap and set us up as we enter into chapter two. The first thing that we have said about the book of Revelation repeatedly is that Revelation is an unveiling, an unmasking, or a revealing of how God sees the world. The Greek word that is translated Revelation is apocalypsis, which is a very frightening word when you read it in the Bible. Um, but what it actually means is far less frightening. It means to unveil or reveal something. And so what we have argued over the last couple of weeks is that Revelation is trying to give us a vision of the world the way that God sees it. It's trying to pull back the layers of the world that we live in, that we are accustomed to, that we feel very comfortable in, and show us, one, that there is more happening under the surface of our lives than we often imagine, and that if we were to see it through God's eyes, we might actually have some issue with the world around us in a new way. We've also said as a part of that idea that Revelation is unveiling something in order for God to speak to this moment now. And so Revelation is prophecy. It is not prediction. And then that's the place that we tend to get the most kind of convoluted about the book of Revelation. We read it and we look for like predictive reference like, if I can take this moment about locusts, and if I can do some work in it, then I'm talking about, like, helicopters in the modern time. But what we've argued is that that is not what the book of Revelation is doing. That Revelation is not trying to predict an exact coming. 
It's not trying to tell us who the Antichrist is. It's not trying to tell us exactly how the world ends. Instead, it is God trying to show us how he sees our moment now. It's not trying to predict one Antichrist. It's trying to tell us that there's actually going to be a lot. That the world is going to look kind of the same way today as it did in ancient Rome. There's going to be a lot of Romes. There's going to be a lot of Babylons. There's going to be a lot of things that have issue with the followers of Jesus. And so for us as the people of Jesus, we're called into something bigger, into something new. The other thing that we've said about the book of Revelation is that it is fundamentally about worship. That at the very end of the day, the book of Revelation is doing the same thing that all books of the Bible are doing. It is inviting us to worship Jesus, and it is doing so within this broader, larger context of a contested universe. Revelations presents a world in which worship is not easily decided because there's lots of things in the world that want to be worshipped, lots of things in the world that want to claim lordship over our lives, lots of kingdoms that want to dominate and to conquer. And so the book of Revelation is unveiling those kingdoms and inviting us to center ourselves in the person of Jesus and say it looks different to worship King Jesus than Rome or Babylon or Caesar or whatever God or emperor is compelling to you, that it looks different to be kingdom citizens centered on the person of Jesus. And number three, the thing that we've said to help us walk through the book of Revelation is that it is about Jesus, it is from Jesus, And it only makes sense if we read it through Jesus, through the lens of Jesus. I think one of the things that happens with the book of Revelation that makes it a very difficult book to read is that we sort of read it like, not like the Gospels, like Jesus isn't the central character of it. And so then we read things into it that look far more like our own culture or far more like our own expectations of how the world works. And Revelation starts to get very weird because the central character has been removed, but Revelation is about Jesus. It's about the kingship and the ordination of Jesus, and it will only make sense if we're reading it towards that end the same way that the whole Bible only makes sense if we read it towards that end. So that's a bit of the grid that we're using to walk through this book. One of the things that we've said about Revelation just in general is that it is a letter. It's a letter that this guy named John, we're not sure exactly who John is, Elder John, Apostle John, not totally sure, but John is writing a letter to churches, seven specifically. And in chapter two of the book of Revelation, John begins to give very specific words to seven churches. So he's kind of set up what this book is about, that it is this unveiling of the world as is, and now he's going to give specific instructions. And in verse seven, he says, this is why. So that whoever has ears might hear what the Spirit says. So there's seven instructions, and they go to seven different churches, but John says to us that it's not really about the individual instructions that go to the individual churches, that the Spirit is trying to tell us something that is true for all churches, that is true for every moment. This is one letter. It would have gotten sent to all of those churches. So everyone would have heard the words to the Ephesians or the Laodiceans or to Pergamum. And John says that's kind of the point, that we should be listening to this to see what the Spirit says to us. In some ways, these little churches are almost like archetypal churches. They're real, 
but they also represent struggles and difficulties that churches have always experienced. And we see in these seven churches different kinds of wrestling and different kinds of issues, from totally accommodating themselves to the world around them to not accommodating and experiencing persecution. And as we see this like full gambit of churches, it's like we can find ourselves in the midst of that. Find where we fit, find what word speaks to us because of our own context and our own moment. There's a format that these little letters fall into. A couple things that each of them do. The first is that every one of them, you'll notice, has an image of Jesus at the beginning, then an encouragement, and then they each do this thing where it says, this I have against you, some kind of exhortation, and then it ends with a challenge. So let's look at the letter to the Ephesians, the first letter that comes in Revelations chapter 2. It starts out with an image of Jesus. And the image of Jesus in this moment comes directly from the image and the vision that John sees at the end of chapter 1, where Jesus is like walking among seven lampstands. He's holding these stars in his hands. And it says, these are the words of the one who walked amongst the lampstands and holds the seven stars. The lampstands is an image of Jesus with the church. John tells us that's what the lampstands are at the end of chapter 1. And it's meant to give us the sense that Jesus is present to the churches, that he's with the churches, that he walks among them relationally, priestly. Then it says he holds these seven stars in his hand, and we explored this last week, that that's actually a cultural image from the world around them, that there was these coins minted with Caesar on them holding seven stars in his hand. And it's meant to evoke this idea that Jesus holds the universe. So here's the image of Jesus, that he is with the churches and he holds the universe in his hands, And it says this, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name. You have not grown weary. So here is the beginning of the letter, right? The encouragement, the commendation. And for a little bit of context, life in Ephesus would not have been easy for early Christians. Just one reason, um, Christians were a small minority in early Rome. They made up mostly house churches. They were like little gatherings of people that just like met around their tables and just had meals together and were trying to figure out what this Christian life looked like. And Ephesus would have been particularly difficult, one, because it was a large city, some scholars say that close to 250,000, which make it a larger city than Salt Lake. I don't know if that makes me feel like that city was large or Salt Lake is small. I was like, I don't know. So somewhere around 250,000 people, and in the middle of Ephesus is this like giant temple to Artemis. It was considered one of the wonders of the world. It was so big, so beautiful. And the early church's worship of Jesus leads to conflict with those who worship Artemis. And not just like religious conflict, economic conflict. If you've read Acts chapter 19, there's this really wonderful moment um, where the Christians are like worshiping Jesus and it's hurting the silversmith industry who makes idols to Artemis. And so then there's a riot. All the silversmiths are like, hey, um, this is how we make our money. Can you stop? And so they riot against the Christians. 
And that's the kind of context of life in Ephesus, that they have disrupted the economic reality of this city. And it has led to these like, moments of like, localized persecution or ostracism or difficulty for this small little church. And Jesus says, well done. Oh man, you have endured this hard moment. You have wrestled through this difficult season. You have persevered. This has been hard, and yet you have persevered. You've put up much for my namesake. And he also says that you have tested these false apostles. He calls them the Nicolaitans. We don't know who the Nicolaitans are. It's probably an insult, though, not like a technical group, because Nicolaitans translates as one who devours people. Um, so it's probably John wielding this as like an insult, that you have tested this false group of people, those who devour the laity, those who devour the congregation, you have found them to be wanting. You have persevered. You have done what is hard. You've endured a lot. But then John says this in verse 4, but I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've endured well, you have tested well, your truth claims are solid, your logic is solid, you know what you believe and you have endured for it, but you have forsaken the love you had at first. Such a simple statement, but if I'm honest, that hits so hard. I think specifically for me, that hits very hard, that it rings true of my own life in the way that I do faith sometimes. And I think as I was thinking about this and reflecting, what does it mean to lose your first love in light of the Ephesians, and what does it mean for our own lives? I think it looks like three different things. I think the first thing that can happen when we start to lose our first love, at least in my own life, and at least what I see in the book of Ephesians, or in this moment to the Ephesians, is that we begin to lose the purpose of our practices. I think this is what happened in Ephesus. It says that they have been enduring, they have been practicing their faith, but the reason that they have been enduring was lost. It's like all of a sudden the practice itself became the point. That endurance for the sake of endurance was the issue. That living and persevering became the point. But the problem is when perseverance or endurance or any Christian practice becomes the point in and of itself, it becomes empty. Christian practices only make sense when they are purposed towards love. Christianity only makes sense when it is purposed towards love. This is a thing that we can very quickly forget. We love Christian practices, but all of them only make sense when they are oriented towards love. It's true of evangelism. It's true of coming to the table. It's true of gathering in this space. It's true of reading your Bible. All of those practices are good and beautiful and right as long as they are purposed towards love. When they are no longer purposed towards love, they become empty. They become devoid of And often what happens is they actually start to act like a boundary around our faith. That when our purpose is lost in our practices, then our practices become like boundaries that determine the edges of our faith. 
practices become ends in and of themselves. The practice becomes the point, and then they start to look like a litmus test or an assessment of true faith. I do this a lot. I, uh, I think I do it the most when it comes to right thinking about faith. I've invested a lot in right thinking. Um, so that makes me feel justified then in being like, yeah, I know what right thinking is. And so if you don't think the way that I do, and if you don't talk the way about theology that I do, and if you don't read your Bible the same way that I do, or even worship the same way that I do, which then often leads, if you don't have the same politics that I do, then we're probably not having this same faith experience. Maybe you're not actually having a true faith experience because true Jesus you bounded in by my right thinking, by my theology, by my politics, by my knowledge. But our practice, these things that are good, these things that are beautiful, these things that are helpful when they are purposed towards love become boundaries around our lives, boundaries around our faith, boundaries around the person of Jesus. And when that happens, then our boundaries actually begin to reduce our image of Jesus. This is the biggest part of this. The biggest issue is that when we start to boundary our faith, then what ends up happening is that our image of Jesus begins to get smaller, more restricted, more reduced, and most likely reduced to something that we've created. The famous uh, North African theologian, Augustine, believed that all sin was about love. That sin originated not in hate, not really in pride, though those things could be connected to it, but that it really fundamentally originated in misordered love, was the phrase that Augustine used. That our loves got jumbled. And it's not that we love bad things. It's not that we love wrong things. For Augustine, his conviction was that we probably have just started to love small things. We have begun to love things that are too small to hold all of our love. It's like we start to love the tools more than we love the project, or we love the ingredients more than we love the meal at the end of the day. And those ingredients or those tools, they are amazing. But if you love them more than the meal, you'll probably never make the meal. And the meal was the point. Experiencing Jesus was the point. Being purposed towards love was the point. We have a misordered love issue. And when our loves are misordered, then we tend to start to create boundaries around our faith. There is a concept, if you're like a math nerd, you probably know this. Um, I'm just insult you for no reason. If you're a, if you're a math smarty pants or uh, you're more of a social science person, there's a concept in both. I think it was stolen from, from, from the mathletes called bounded set versus centered set. And if you like, a bounded set is the concept that there are boundaries around a set of, of numbers, or in social science, that there's a boundary around a set of social relationships. If you want to establish a club, you might create a boundary around who gets to be in the club. You have to meet these measurements, you have to believe in these things, you have to dress this way, you have to do those things. That would be a bounded set around 
a social club. Or even more simple, you could think about it like a fence. Like if you own a piece of land and you want to keep your animals in, you build a fence. That's a boundary around your land. Bounded sets are helpful. They're really good at certain things. They're really effective at certain things. They protect us in certain ways. They keep things in. But they tend to only work when you're dealing with small parcels of land or small ideas or small groups of people. Now, on the other side of bounded set is the idea of a centered set, which is instead of being defined by the wall that is around us, a centered set is defined by the middle. So instead of it being like a farmer who builds a wall, it'd be like a rancher who has too much property to build a wall around, so they dig a well in the middle or multiple wells in the middle, and it's the wells that draw things into the middle because that's where the life-giving source is. Centered set is dependent upon what is at the heart, what is in the middle, what draws things into the middle. The love of Jesus, the love that I think John is talking about in Ephesians is meant to be a centering well for Christian life. It is the purpose of the Christian practices. It is the purpose of the Christian existence. So it draws us home at the middle. We are supposed to be centered on something far more than we are bounded by something. And when we are centered on something that is big and that is rich and that is compelling, i.e. the love of Jesus, then what it does is it begins to restore the purposes of our practice. They have an end to them and are no longer means in and of themselves. And our clean walls are disrupted in that way. When we are centered on something, when we are drawn to the source of something, love is the purpose of our Christian practice. I think this is the issue that Jesus has with the Ephesians, that you have forsaken the love that you had at first. So then John tells them, you have forsaken. You've forsaken the thing that drove you, that drew you into this, that brought you into the center of this thing. So he says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Eugene Peterson in the message says, turn back. Do the things that you did at first. I love that statement because I think that what John is naming in this moment is that many of us, Ephesians, but I also think me and I think many of us in this room, we forgot what drew us to this thing in the first place. We forgot what drew us to Jesus in the first place. We forgot what made this thing compelling, what gave it purpose, what gave it a reason to exist. Why did we show up even in this room in the beginning? Why did we show up at all? Why did we begin to follow Jesus? What made us curious or interested? I think we have, in many cases, forgotten that. I wonder, can you remember what drew you to Jesus in the first place? That's a hard question for some of us to answer because some of us have been following Jesus for a long time, so that might have been a long time ago. Can you remember what drew you to Jesus like most recently? My wife, Tori, she jokes that I get reconverted every couple of years. <laughs> this is probably not a good thing for a pastor to say, but I, uh, 
I like will read something. It's, it happens just, you never know when it's going to happen. I'll be like reading something. It will be like, it's always, there's always like a dual moment. I'm reading something and we're sitting by a lake. That's like the perfect scenario for me to meet Jesus. Um, and we're like, I'll be like reading something and I'll like put it down and I'll look at Tori and she'll be like, you look dumb. And I'll be like, I think I just, I believe this thing. I don't know why <laughs> something just happened. And I'm like, this is a beautiful story. Like I believe this thing about Jesus. I am compelled by Jesus. And so Tori started joking that those are my like reconversion moments. Just every couple of years, something happens where I'm like, oh, this thing is cool. What draws you to the center of this thing? What brings you to Jesus? What is compelling about this story? I think a lot of us actually lose our faith because the center of our faith falls out, and all we are left with is practices and boundaries without purpose. And when all we have is practices and boundaries that have no purpose, well, they feel empty. And often they start to feel restricting, and sometimes they feel hateful, and sometimes they feel destructive, and so we reject them, which I think makes a lot of sense. We stop reading the Bible as a thing that draws us to Jesus. No wonder we stop reading it. We stop seeing church as a thing that exists in and of itself to point us towards Jesus, to get us an experience of Jesus. Yeah, no wonder we stop coming. Without Jesus at the center, this thing is stupid. Stop praying or doing house church because the same thing, all those things exist only as an extension or as an experience centered on Jesus. And without that, they just don't make sense. But when they are centered on Jesus, when they are centered on the love of Christ, well, then they begin to find their purpose. They begin to find their freedom. They begin to find their orientation. Not as ends in and of themselves, but as means to experience Christ. And that makes them matter. And so, Missy, the question for us today, and a couple of questions, is what draws us to Jesus? What compels us about this thing? What centers us in Jesus? What leads us here? And maybe the question you should actually ask first is, what is the center of our faith? Because maybe, like, just to be honest, I, and I think I have to answer this question honestly, it's not always Jesus. I think it's much easier than we think for it to be something else. It's not the love of Jesus. It's not the love that's displayed in the cross. It's not Jesus. It's something else. It's my own knowledge. It's my own boundaries. It's my own politics. It's my own ethics. It's my own understanding of justice. It's my own understanding of generosity. Beautiful, good, right things. They will not hold the center. So what is the center of your faith? And then number two, how can you curate, or maybe the word is go back to the center? And I use the word curate just because I don't know what the answer to that question is for everybody in this room. Like, what is the thing that would draw you back to a center on Jesus? And so maybe you could just begin to wrestle with that. What Jesus. And today we have a couple of different opportunities to have that kind of experience, to center ourselves back on Jesus. First, we gather at the table. 
And we do this practice every single week because it serves as that symbol almost of the thing that draws us back to the center of our faith. It's literally post-COVID in the middle of the room. This is the, or, this is the center, the thing that draws us here, the thing that organizes our faith, the thing that keeps us in there is this experience with Jesus that is symbolized by the table. So today we have a moment to gather at the table to be drawn back in. But we're also going to hear and see some baptisms. And baptisms are a moment, maybe one of the most beautiful moments where the love that someone has is publicly declared. And it's about them, it's about committing to them, it's about hearing their commitment to Jesus. But as they do that, we have a unique opportunity to be challenged by the declaration that they make to be invited into something by the declaration that they make, to be compelled into something by the declaration they make. So, Missio, today, would you use these two moments, gathering at the table and celebrating baptisms to wrestle with these questions? What is the center of your faith? And how can you get back? Or how can you curate Jesus at the center? If you hold those two questions, let me pray for you as we continue worshiping. Jesus, would you help us today have an imagination for you at the center of our faith? An image for you is big and compelling that kind of pushes against all the things that would try to take dominance over that spot. We have an image of you that is like that draws us in. Not one that just like disappears our doubts or overcomes the questions that we have, but gives us room to hold those things. One that, that gives us room to hold properly our practices and our beliefs and our hopes and the things that we hold dear. An image of you that is actually like bigger than all of those things. It centers those things. I guess the chief prayer today, Jesus, is we see you. That we ask these things in your name. Amen. Monsieur, when you're ready, uh, elements are actually at the table this week. They're still in cups, like little cups. So if you can come to the table, you can pray there for a second, and you can go back to your seats. There's gluten-free ones at the very end. Haven't done this in a while, so just wanted to give you some instructions. Uh, we invite you to continue worshiping with us.